Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and on this episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have a conversation with Howard Marks, technology extraordinaire and plenipotentiary at Vast Data. He was also the founder and chief scientist at Deep Storage, an independent test lab that evaluates storage products. He is also the author of several books and over 200 articles on network and storage topics since 1987. He is a frequent speaker at industry conferences, including Comdex, Networks Expo, and Interop. We discuss the rules of nines, pros and cons of using all flash storage, and using replication to keep RTOs and RPOs in check on this episode. So sit back and relax and enjoy this episode. Howard, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. How are you? I'm just fine and looking forward to some gumbo. Been a while since I've been to Louisiana. Oh, yeah. And the good thing about it is that you don't have to go to Louisiana to get it if you know how to make it. <laughs> I, I, I've always been a little afraid of okra. but Oh, really? Yeah, o- okra, it's, it's slimy, but it has to be in the gumbo. Now, you can leave out the shrimp and add chicken and whatever else you'd like, but the okra is a must. Yep, All right? I, I understand that. I'm just, you know, northern white boy afraid to cook okra. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and, and dive into the, the conversation. But before we do that, why don't you just give a little bit of background about yourself and also vast data, if you don't mind? Sure. Well, you know, I'll start with myself because I always like talking about me. Um before joining Vast Data, I was uh, ruthlessly independent. I spent about 40 years as an independent consultant and then analyst in the storage business. And I wrote for various magazines through that period as a way to sell the consulting business. So I've been following the storage business forever. Uh, and eventually, the lone gun analyst business just got too lonely, and I felt like joining a team. And vast data came around, and in my heart of hearts, I'm a storyteller. You know, I explain how technology works. I tell the story, and vast just had a great story to tell. You know, the the difference between vast and pretty much everybody else in the storage business is we had the advantage of a late start. You know, you, you keep hearing about first player advantage. Um, but the downside to being early into a market is you lock your design to the tools that are available when you do your initial architecture. Changing things is really difficult. And the longer you go on, the more you have to be backwards compatible with everything else you've ever done, which you know, our CEO, Renan Halleck, who used to be the chief engineer at Extreme IO, describes to me as you know, you lock yourself into all your mistakes. Once you make a mistake, you have to be backwards compatible with that mistake forever because some customer 
is taking advantage of the quirk that that mistake created. And so instead of starting in the 90s or the early 2000s, like the rest of the storage industry, we started in 2016. And that meant that our parts kit was a different parts kit than everybody else's. We weren't working with one gigabit ethernet and spinning disks, or even SSDs that emulated spinning disks. We were dealing with 40 and 100 gig ethernet, NVMe over fabrics, and SSD, NVMe SSDs that were SSDs, and you could talk to them knowing that they were non-volatile memory inside, not treating them as a black box that emulated a hard drive. And that, combined with storage class memory SSDs, meant we could build a completely new storage architecture. In the storage class memory SSDs, originally Optane, we now also support um, Kioxia's FL6, but the, those high-performance, high-endurance SSDs with an NVMe over Fabrics connection to the compute node that is essentially the controller meant data that was shared in those SSDs across multiple controllers was fast enough we didn't have to cache it in RAM. And that meant that we could store metadata in a shared persistent place without having to cache it in all the front end processors. And that meant we didn't have to keep that cache coherent. So everything became much simpler. Just writing new data to two SCM SSDs and updating the metadata is much simpler than doing that and sending a broadcast message to all the other nodes in the cluster that say, I changed this, make sure you invalidate the old copy you might have in cache. So we have a very large, all flash file and object storage system based on a new architecture that we call DACE, distributed, shared, everything. And what that means is we've disaggregated the media from the compute that is essentially the controller. So we have the media, both the SCM SSDs and the lowest cost QLC SSDs we can find in highly available enclosures that are connected to the NVMe fabric. And then all of the compute of the system runs in Docker containers in another set of servers that are also connected to that NVMe fabric. So you can scale the capacity by adding enclosures, and you can scale the performance by adding compute servers independently. Every, every compute server mounts every SSD in the cluster across however many enclosures you have at boot time. So all the traffic goes from a user who sends an NFS or an SMB or an S3 request to a front-end server. Then that server accesses the metadata in the SCM and the data in the QLC and replies to the user. There's no need for the compute servers to communicate with each other to find out who has the latest version or who's cached the latest update or maintain any of that state. All the state is in the SCM in the enclosures where we don't have to worry about power failures because it's already SCM. There's no batteries. There's no 
ultra capacitors. There's no cache coherency because there's no cache. Why don't you just um, maybe give us some pros and cons around using, you know, all flash storage? Maybe maybe let's start with that. Can you break that down for us? Well, the the, the, the easy part is that all flash storage is better in every way except historically cost that you know even even if we're talking about a sata ssd that emulates a sata hard drive that you can buy a 30 terabyte ssd today in the two and a half inch small form factor the biggest hard drive you can buy is 20 terabytes and that's the two the three and a half inch large form factor so you get a lot more density, you get lower power consumption, and you get higher performance. The problem historically has been Flash has been 20 or 50 times more expensive per gigabyte than spinning disks. And so when Renan left Extreme IO and he went on the tour of Extreme IO customers to see what to do next and talk to them, they all said, we love the product. We love how fast it is. We wish we could afford to use it for more of our applications. Nobody said, yes, this all flash system, it's not fast enough. We really, you know, 300 miles an hour isn't fast enough. We need to go 400 miles an hour. And so we set out to design a system that could provide the energy and uh, density and performance advantages that flash delivered while minimizing that cost difference. And so that starts with the majority of the capacity in the system. In fact, all the capacity we talk about is low-cost QLC SSDs. And, and those SSDs that we use are not what most vendors would consider enterprise SSDs. They don't have a DRAM buffer to minimize wear on the QLC flash. But because they don't have that DRAM buffer, they don't have to have the power fail protection circuitry in case the power fails to protect that DRAM. They don't have to have the ultra capacitor to power the power fail protection so they can dump that DRAM into flash. And they're much less expensive. And we take on in our software the responsibility for treating that SSD in a way that minimizes the wear on the SSD. Because the downside to cheap SSDs is if you don't treat them carefully, you can wear them out. And so, so we take part of what's normally considered the flash translation layer that's built into the SSD that makes the SSD look like a block device, like a drive. And we take some of that responsibility. So when we write to the SSDs, we write in very large sequential writes because that minimizes the, the wear impact of the writes. When we erase, we erase in very, very large blocks because that minimizes how much work the SSD has to do internally and its wear. The, the whole make it efficient story continues to how we do data protection. Uh, we use erasure codes, and I'm sure that's a term you and your listeners have heard before. But 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of the time, when a vendor says erasure codes, 
they mean a set of erasure codes discovered by a pair of mathematicians, Reed and Solomon. And Reed-Solomon erasure codes have some significant advantages, the biggest of which is you can generate an arbitrary number of parity stri strips and therefore protect against an arbitrary number of device failures. The downside to Reed-Solomon codes is any time you're recovering data, rebuilding data from a device failure, you need to read the data from all the surviving drives in that set to compute the, the data that was on the lost drive. That effectively limits how wide your erasure code stripe can be, because if you wrote a stripe with 100 data strips and four parity strips, you have to read 100 strips every time something fails, and that overhead is too high. So, so the, the short form on our erasure code stripes is we can write very wide stripes, and we only have to read a quarter of the survivors. Okay. So we have less overhead. And that means on a large system, we can have just 2.7% erasure code overhead mm -hmm. instead of the usual 25%. Got it. Okay. We do data reduction. Beyond the usual compression and deduplication, we've got a new technique called similarity that further reduces the size of blocks that aren't identical, but are very similar to blocks that have been stored already. And all of this means that we can deliver a system of many petabytes to a customer, and it will cost that customer the same or less than the traditional pyramid of I have a little bit of all flash, and then I have some hybrids, and then I have my deep archive. And if you can have all flash for all your applications, why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the only reason we use disks is because they're cheaper. And we keep chipping away at how much cheaper to the point where the total cost becomes the same. And now you eliminate all the complexity of moving data between tiers. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And you, you also mentioned in one of your blog posts, Howard, you know, why you should make your data indestructible. I, I hope you remember that. Oh, I do. <laughs> what, what, what did you mean by that? Well, today, the, the threat everybody's worried about is ransomware. Um, but, but in reality, ransomware is a threat we've known about a long time, the rogue administrator. The whole thing with ransomware is somehow the ransomware gets some bad actor a privileged password, and then they do damage to your system. But we've, been, we've had problems with rogue administrators forever. And so what indestructible simply means is we protect data, in this case snapshots, from anyone, including the guy who has the root password, because the guy who has the root password may have had a bad night and been gotten the word that he was getting divorced and fired <laughs> and wants to delete all your data. Wow. Or it could be somebody with ransomware who wants to encrypt all your data. And so we have a mechanism where you say, I want to take a snapshot of this folder. I want that snapshot to happen once a day. And I want those snapshots to stay for 60 days, even if the root user wants to delete them. And, and does write once, read many come into play? 
there at all? One, you know, once a snapshot is indestructible, it's read many, and it's been written once. So yeah, it, it is worm. Okay. Um, you know, people start talking about virtual air mm-hmm. gaps, which, you know, I don't. You know, I'm old you don't school, like it? and an air gap. Nah, an air gap is an air gap. There's no such thing as a virtual air gap. <laughs> um, but the idea of you know making multiple steps and hoops that an attacker has to pass through before they even have access to the system to try creating data—that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just object to the term. Got it. Got it. And uh, I, I also saw something as well. I'm I'm a little curious, and I'm sure the gumbo listeners would also be curious as well. You mentioned something that you call the rule of nines. Why, why is that important? Because we don't do IT eight to five, Monday to Friday anymore. I'm an, I'm an old guy. When I started, you, know, you could say, uh, this Sunday from noon to 4 p.m., we're taking this system offline for maintenance. And then you could do your maintenance. That's not true anymore. You know, especially in the age of COVID, where a large percentage of your users are working remote and therefore working whatever hours they want to work, your applications have to remain available. And so availability becomes critically important. Um, A lot of the time we compete with the HPC parallel file systems. And the HPC world is very different from the enterprise world. HPC people like are, are used to taking downtime. They're used to twiddling with their stuff and using their expertise. But we want to provide a system that you can consolidate many applications on. And if you do that in an enterprise workspace, that system has to stay up because there are many applications on it. And if it goes down, all of those applications go down. So, so the system's designed to run 724 indefinitely. And, you know, as you noticed in that blog post, we reached the point where our ET phone home analytics platform reports that the aggregate uptime of our user systems that are reporting is over five nines. Mm-hmm. In fact, the last time I looked, it was over six nines. Wow. Okay. And we have a relatively small number of relatively large systems in our installed base. You know, we don't have thousands and thousands of systems. We have hundreds of systems. And that means if one system's offline for two days, that takes a couple of nines off of our counter. So the scale of our systems, the fact that there are many petabytes and therefore have many more things to break, and the relatively small number of those systems that we have in the field makes the achievement of five nines just more impressive. Got it. And something else that I think that goes along with the five nines conversation is, you know, RTOs and RPOs and all the different SLAs that that the organization has. So uh, my question for you is, I guess, how can Gumbo listeners get the most bang for their buck around, let's say, replication? So I know a lot of organizations are still replicating data from, you know, one site to another or one region to another and just making sure that that data is in sync. What's, what's the conversation like nowadays when, when you are having a conversation about replication, Howard? Well, there are two conversations. There's the, I need to protect the data conversation. 
you know, this is uh, genome scans we've generated over many years. We've got millions of dollars invested, invested in collecting this data. We have to make sure this data is safe. Um, and the RPO on that is we can't let more than a day or two's data not get saved just in dollars to reproduce. Uh, and the RTO is, well, we're not actually setting a recovery time objective because we're not worried about the operations. We're just worried about the data. Um, and for that, you know, it's a backup solution. And so we have an automated take a snapshot, bundle it up into S3 objects, store it on an S3 object store mechanism built into the system customers can use to satisfy that. The other side of it is it's not the data I'm looking to protect, it's my IT operation I'm looking to protect. So we're talking about availability more than durability. And for that, we have asynchronous point-in-time replication between two VAST systems and automated failover both if the other VAST system is still available and if it's not. Uh, and then, you know, our differentiator there is just what traditionally people with that kind of replication let you have a granularity down to 15 minutes and we go down to 15 seconds so it's not it's not synchronous it's not metro cluster but it is protecting your data and your operations so you can do an automated failover okay and you you mentioned something around it operations and one thing that i think about is if you were having a conversation with a, a CIO or let's say an I, IT director and typically or back in the day when I was a system administrator in the data center now you say you're an old guy but you know you you have a gray beard and I don't quite do the the beard thing but I do have a couple of gray hairs here so uh, I, I may not catches up to the best yeah, of us yeah yeah I may not be as old as you but uh you know, I'm, I'm feeling it. So the conversation about power consumption, space and cooling and cost and all of these things that individuals would think are no longer a conversation since everyone's running in the cloud now and all workloads are migrating to the cloud. How would that conversation look? And are you still having these conversations about these things? Oh, very much so. Um, you know, not everything has moved to the cloud. We deal with organizations who are just have too much data to be moving it to the cloud. Data has gravity. We have organizations who just consider that data too sensitive to let outside their premises. Uh, and we have customers who are doing things hybrid on premises and in cloud. Um, but this all comes down, but it always comes down to, you know, I only have so much data center space. I only have so much power in that data center. Frequently, we get into situations where it's we only have you know eight kVA per rack, and so you can only put that much gear in the rack, even though there's plenty of space left there. There just isn't more power or enough air conditioning to remove it. And so you know our density and our lower power consumption than disk-based systems comes in real handy there. Um, but we also have a trick. It it turns out that SSDs consume vastly more power when they're writing than when they're reading. And so we, when you design a data center, because you don't really have, you know, the vendor will tell you typically this unit uses 600 watts, 
but it could peak at 800 watts. And you have to design your rack based on that 800 watts peak because you never know who you have no control over when it peaks and they could all peak at the same time. You don't want to blow, blow the circuit breaker. We actually will allow customers to throttle their systems. They can say in this rack, we have you know, five petabytes of storage and we don't want that five petabytes to ever draw more than eight KVA. And if the power consumption starts approaching 8 kVA, we'll start applying back pressure on the new writes so that the rate of data being written and therefore the power consumption stays within the window. And so if we're talking about you know, using a vast system as a backup target, that may increase how long your backups take by a little bit, but it means you can fit more capacity in the same amount of rack space. And when we start dealing with very large systems, that little bit kind of doesn't matter. It's like, I can only back up at 80 gigabytes per second usually isn't a problem for people. I just thought of something, and I hope you don't mind me jumping in here. I, I had a, a thought, and I wanted to know, are you still running into data domains out there in the wild? Oh, very much so. Really? Um, you know, we're okay. We're hitting data domains all the time, and you know we get to hit them in a couple of places. The mm -hmm. biggest one being restore performance. Okay. You know, our systems being flash based have a read write asym asymmetry. We you can read data from us much faster than you can write, mm -hmm. about eight times as fast. Um, data domains have exactly the opposite read write asymmetry. Because rehydrating duplicated data from spinning disks means those spinning disks have to reconstruct random blocks. Reads from data domains are slower than writes to the extent that they don't even publish the read performance. They only publish write backup performance. And so we can say, here's a system. It costs less than the, the equivalent capacity in data domain. It backs up the same speed as the equivalent data domain. It restores eight times faster. Now, restore speed used to be something we didn't really worry about because most restores were small. You know, five years ago, 80 or 90% of the restores were a user overwrote a file or a DBA corrupted a database. And you have to restore that one object. And it's you know a few terabytes at most. But with ransomware, it's like, well... That ransomware had all night to encrypt data, and it was using 500 PCs in your corporate headquarters to do it. So you have to restore hundreds or thousands of files. The restore gets much bigger, so the restore bandwidth becomes much more important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the other big advantage we have is data domain, uh, their biggest appliance is about a petabyte and a half of okay. usable capacity. And if that's not enough for you and you buy a second one, each appliance is its own deduplication realm. Right. So if you have 5,000 Windows VMs and 10 data domains you're backing them up to, each of those 10 data domains is going to have a copy of Windows. We, regardless of how big the cluster gets, and that's hundreds of petabytes, the deduplicate, it's one deduplication realm because we store that in the SCM and the amount of SCM grows as you grow the capacity. So we don't have those limitations. 
So the data reduction gets much more effective for very large data sets. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting conversation. I remember when I was at EMC a while ago and the acquisition happened in networker and just, you know, data domain. I mean, it was the hype of its time, you know, and I've, le I've left that world and I, I no longer have to deal with data domains and, you know, a, a lot of storage because I'm mostly on the SaaS side of the house now and, and it's just not my world anymore. So, you know, and um, I remember deduplication and, and all of the different types of ratios and we're a 2000 to one. And I mean, it was it was a big, a big conversation that that everyone. Deduplication is a wonderful thing for marketeers because mm -hmm. uh, you get to use the weasel words <laughs> up to. <laughs> How much deduplication do you get? Well, we get up to four million to yeah, one. Yeah. So, yes, if you built a data set that had four million copies of the same data, you could get four million to one. Um, but what you get in the real world is different. And mm -hmm. what we like what we like to talk about is how when you use you know backup applications like Veeam or Commvault or uh, Rubrik to backup to a vast system, even if you have the compression and the deduplication in those applications turned on, we still get substantial data reduction. Gotcha. And uh, you know because frankly those applications have limited data reduction. They deduplicate on big blocks for various reasons. And our similarity just picks up the defects in that data reduction and goes, oh, we can squeeze this some more. Yeah, and I remember there were some issues around deduplicating encrypted data. And um, yeah, so I, I want to wanna ask you a question. Do you see a lot of use cases, um, and, and maybe not around deduplication and encrypting data, but just use cases around where encryption is kind of a, like a huge component when you're designing and architecting a solution that stores data. In, encryption has become table stakes. Okay. Yeah. You know, it even though the main problem encryption at rest solves is what do I do with this dead disk drive that has my data on it? Mm -hmm. Well, now it's a dead disk drive with my data on it encrypted, and it doesn't have the key, so I can just throw it out. Before I had to keep them around and then hire the shredding machine company to come deal with them. Right. Um, but you know we need encryption kind of across the board. You need encryption at flight when you're sending data to the cloud because you could have a man in the middle attack. And so all of that's important. And then the question becomes, where do you encrypt data? And that's really about what threats are you trying to solve. Uh, I'm not a huge believer in encryption at flight on networks that never leave the data center. The encryption at flight is how you protect data against a man-in-the-middle attack. There are no men in the middle physically in my data center. So between a server and its storage, I don't understand. You know, I'm, I don't think that needs to be encrypted. But the data at rest needs to be encrypted. If you encrypt too early, it takes all the entropy out of the data, so we can't reduce it nearly as well. Although we did have one customer who was storing a couple of petabytes of net backup encrypted backups that were all encrypted with the same key. Mm -hmm. And our deduplication started finding blocks of data that even though they were encrypted, since they were encrypted with the same key, the ciphertext was identical each time. 
and and we we and the customer were shocked we were getting you know one point five to one or so reduction of of that encrypted data right um but um that's a corner case it's if you have a very large amount of data encrypted all with the same key um, <laughs> but it's just curious right yeah gotcha gotcha and you know, let, let's begin to wrap up here, but I, I want to, to see, you know, what, what books are on Howard's nightstand nowadays? I saw the, I think it's Amazon Prime, it might be HBO Max series Reacher, based on the novel, series of novels, and got intrigued by the, oh, look, a huge loner who goes and solves crimes around the world. And have started, you know, there's 20 some odd books in the series. I'm up to seven or number seven or eight. Just, you know, it's just, you know, look, here's something I don't really need to think all that much about. It's just a yarn. Gotcha. Gotcha. And is there any like outgoing message that you would like to share with the listeners or maybe any social media uh, handles or anything like that? Well, you can always find me on Twitter at, at Deep Storage Net. Uh, I tweet about all sorts of things, both business and political. And, you know, the takeaway about Vast is, you know, rethink the concept of all Flash. You know, what, how would your life be different if instead of using Flash for 10 or 20% of your application, you used it for 80 or 90% of your applications? Wouldn't your life be easier? And we're really all about making people's lives easier. Got it. All right. Well, Howard, I do truly appreciate your time today and you sharing some of your insights and all of the information in your brain that you've stored over the last, what, 20, 30 years about storing data, protecting data, backups. I mean, the list goes on. So it's over 40 years, I'm afraid, embarrassed to say. 40. Ooh. Wow. So you started at 12 years old. I did. You did? Right. Wow, I guess I need uh, <laughs> another job at Fortune Teller. <laughs> well, Howard, it's been a pleasure, and we'll have a conversation with you again in the future, hopefully. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search backup and recovery professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.